Open your Bibles up to John chapter 8. Uh, if you have one of our Bibles from the welcome table or the table uh, bookshelf over here, it's on page 950. John chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 31 this morning and then work our way through the end of the chapter today. Hopefully by now you understand uh, the, the uh, evangelistic intent of John's gospel. He gives us the purpose for his writing in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that were not written in this book, but these seven, right, we, we, we've, we've, it's structured around seven signs, but these are written so that you may believe, believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing that you may have life in his name. If we could summarize John's gospel in one word, it would be believe, believe. John wants his readers to have faith in Jesus Christ. That's important for us to remember. Sometimes the world tells us or, or, or sees us and says, we don't want them to have what we have. And sometimes we show that by our behavior and words. But we need to remember, John is eager that those who read this gospel would get what John got, that they would get Jesus, that they would believe and have life in his name. He wants them to put their trust in Jesus and to follow Jesus because that is the only true way to find life. But John also wants his readers to understand what true belief looks like, and so then he includes passages like this one that we're going to read today to help us recognize the difference between real belief, real faith, and superficial faith. And that's important for all of us because not everyone who claims to follow God or claims to follow Jesus actually does. After Jesus claimed to be the light of the world in last week's passage, we finished up with this in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Today's passage is going to test the genuineness of that faith. We get that statement with no qualifications, and we've seen how that statement works itself out typically so far in John. A lot of the people who claim to believe in Christ have not believed in him. It's going to test the genuineness of their faith, and if we are willing, it will test the genuineness of ours as well. And so I want to pray that the Lord helps us through this this morning, and then we'll dig in. Father, your word is eternal. It stands firm like your faithfulness that covers the earth, like your glory that covers the earth. Father, we pray that you would be glorified this morning in the, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, him crucified, resurrected, ascended, for your people, that we would see this morning your truth, hear it, and believe truly. Those who have not believed in Christ, that they would believe today and find life in him. And those of us that have believed in Christ, that we would be encouraged as we continue to believe, that you would uh, fortify that belief in us and encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a culture where if anyone questions anything that you say or do, it's immediately interpreted as a malicious 
personal attack instead of a, a simple quest for truth. Nobody wants to have their authenticity tested. This is the, this is the reality of our culture. You get to say who you are and no one can tell you otherwise. That's a dangerous way to live in the here and now because the Bible tells us that no creature is hidden from God and all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's Hebrews 4.13. You know what that means? This, this sobering reality means that right now, in this moment, as these words are coming out of my mouth, nothing in your life is hidden from God. Nothing. Not your thoughts. I don't know what you're thinking right now, but God does. Not your secrets. I don't know what you've done, but God does. Nothing in your life, not your actions, nothing is hidden from God. He sees it all and he knows it all, and this is always true. It's never not true. You'll never be able to hide anything from God. And one day, you will stand before him and be required to give an account of your life and hold nothing back because he already knows it all. And he alone will be the final judge of your authenticity. Now, that is a terrifying thing. Paul says in Romans, we, we talked Romans 6 this morning in the prayer time, or, or uh, Hebrews, sorry. Uh, the author of Hebrews at one point says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But when we open up the pages of Scripture and we see who this living God is, we see that he's a gracious God as well. And because he's a gracious God who's given us his word as a means of grace to serve as a mirror that enables us to see all the good and the bad and the ugly that resides in our hearts. The verse right before the one I just quoted to you in Hebrews, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the, Lord, the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts, and the intentions of our heart. This is grace. Why is this grace? It's grace because God has given us a way to be tested and rescued before the final judgment, before we have to give an account without also then giving an account of Jesus' life that covers ours. And he does that in order to cultivate genuine faith in us now so that we do receive the final reward of faith, which is what John wants for his readers, that you may believe and have life in his name. That's the reward, that we get to live with God in eternity and experience his faithful love forever and ever as we behold his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. While claiming to follow Jesus in our current culture is progressively coming at a greater and greater cost, it's not, it's not as cool anymore. You can't get away with it if it's, if it's superficial as easily. There are still people who claim Jesus as Savior but live as if he's not their Lord. These people follow in the footsteps of our culture by taking offense at anyone or anything that tests their 
authenticity. And like our culture, they fail to see that the testing of their, their authenticity is actually for their good because it directs them to what is really true. If our desire is to truly follow Christ, then we'll be willing to have our faith tested by letting him tell us what it really looks like to follow him. And that, that's the main point of our message this morning. Jesus is going to tell us that. So here's what it is. Out of his own mouth, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. What does it mean to continue in his word? Well, his word is going to teach us that this morning. People who continue in Christ's word will know the truth, they'll carry out their heavenly Father's desires, and they'll glorify the Son. These are the things that we're going to see in his word this morning. So let's dig in. Look at uh, John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, uh, if you continue in my word... You really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, truly, I tell you, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really are free. You really will be free. I know that you're descendants of Abraham, but you're trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. John told us in verse 30 that many believed in Jesus because of what he was saying. In other words, they believed his word. That's the claim. Here Jesus immediately put their belief to the test. He said, if you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you continue in my word, in the original Greek, that word that gets translated as continue here, it's all over the place in John's gospel. And in, in other ways, in the English, it gets translated as remain or abide, it might say in your translation. Uh, stay, reside, to last. Perseverance is the mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a start and stop kind of faith. It's a start and keep going kind of faith. In verse 32, Jesus was offering freedom, which implied then that the Jews were slaves. They were offended at this comment, and they grew defensive. We're descendants of Abraham. What are you talking about? We've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know that as a people... Descended from Abraham, they've been ruled over and oppressed by major foreign powers for pretty much their entire existence. They were literally slaves in Egypt when God brought them out. And at the time of this conversation with Jesus, the Jews are living in the land that God had promised to give to them, but they were doing so under the rule of Caesar and the Roman government. The Jews were fully aware of their ancestors' history and their own current situation, they were claiming not to be uh, free from oppressive foreign powers, but they were, they were claiming to, be, uh, to have spiritual freedom by virtue of being Jewish, being descendants of the, the covenant line of Abraham. Jews often referred to themselves as sons of the kingdom. So that, uh, when they say we're sons of Abraham, they, they could, we could 
uh, replace that with, we're sons of the kingdom. What do you mean we're enslaved? According to Judaism, the study of the law, the Torah, is what made a man free. One Jewish rabbi wrote, whoever takes upon himself the yoke of the Torah, the law, they remove from him the yoke of government and the yoke of worldly concerns. And whoever breaks off from himself the yoke of the Torah, if you set the law aside, then they place on you the, the yoke of government and the yoke of worldly concerns. These Jews were claiming spiritual freedom from Roman oppression and from pagan influence because they were under the yoke of the, the Torah, the law. We follow the law. We're not enslaved to anybody. Jesus told them that neither the law nor their ancestry brought them freedom from slavery to sin. Remember that he, what he told the Pharisees back in, in verses 23 and 24? We saw this last week. He said, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your what? Sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In other words, listen, you're slaves to sin unless you believe the truth about who I am. Only that truth will free you from slavery to sin. It's not that the law isn't true. The law came from God, and we know that God cannot lie. But back in chapter 5, Jesus told them that the law testified about him, the truth of the law points to the need for Christ. Because as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 3, no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. What does the law do for us? It helps us see our need. That's why in chapter 1, John can call it grace upon grace. The law is a grace of God that exposes our need. And Jesus himself, who come, came in grace and truth, is the, 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 the deeper grace of God that provides for the need that we have. These Jews were saying, we're not slaves. We're sons of the kingdom because the law has set us free. But Jesus told them, you're not sons. You're slaves to sin. And you will not remain in the kingdom unless the son sets you free. See the parallel statements that Jesus made in verses 32 and 36. The truth will set you free, verse 32. The Son will set you free, verse 36. The truth and the Son, S-O-N, are the same thing. In chapter 14, Jesus will claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one becomes a child of God unless the true son sets them free from slavery to sin. That is the reality. The Jews were continuing in the law, but they were ignoring the gospel. They weren't continuing in Jesus' word, this gospel truth about who he was and what he had come to do. They weren't actually even continuing in the law, even though they thought they were. Why? Because they wanted to kill him, which is against the law. Their law. They wanted to murder an innocent man because his word had no place among them. These are, this is Jesus' own accusation of them. They didn't want to be tested. They didn't want to be rescued by the truth. They were offended by it. And they grew defensive. True disciples of Jesus are those who don't just know the truth intellectually, but experientially. 
It gets down deep into your life. We know the truth that we were once slaves to sin until the Son of God set us free by offering himself on the cross to receive the wrath of God that we deserved. And God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We sang that this morning. We know that he gave us the, what the law could never give us, his own perfect righteousness. You see, it's not enough to just forgive us of our sins. He has to replace it with something. And, it, and nobody could ever get the righteousness of Christ unless he gives it to them. And we only get it from him by believing in him. We rejoice in our adoption as sons and daughters of God, but we do so in humble recognition that our adoption came through the death and the resurrection of God's one and only son, Jesus Christ. We claim our ongoing need for his grace rather than claiming the sufficiency of anything that we've done or relying on any sort of earthly heritage. My parents were believers. My grandparents were pillars of faith. Praise God for that, but it doesn't matter for you. Do you know the truth? Do you know the truth, not just intellectually, but experientially? Does it shape your life when Jesus says the truth will set you free? And then he says, truly, I tell you, you can't afford to ignore whatever he says next. And what he says next is that you are a slave to sin. Unless the sun sets you free. Do you see how truth and grace work together? The reality is this, and it's terrible for you. But the reality is also this, and it brings freedom. It fixes this. Do you believe that? Does his word have no place among you? You can't confess faith in Christ without first confessing your enslavement to sin. This has to be a reality that you agree with Jesus on. The truth of the gospel gives you the freedom to freely confess your sin because the truth of the gospel promises forgiveness for all of your sin if you turn away from it and turn toward Jesus in faith. Because the God who knows all and sees all and judges all already knows everything you've ever done. What great freedom we have then to confess what God already knows because he promises then if we do, he won't hold us accountable for it because he held his son accountable for it. Why would you want to remain in slavery when you can have true freedom? Jesus Christ is where you need to fix the eyes of faith, your heart and your mind and your soul. Those of us who have been set free by the Son need to remember that just because we're no longer slaves to sin, that doesn't mean that we're no longer slaves at all, right? Remember what we just read in Romans 6 for the prayer time? We're now slaves of righteousness. That's the only good kind of slavery. We need to be careful not to lull ourselves into the same mindset as the Pharisees here, calling ourselves sons and daughters of the kingdom while we continue to be casual about our sin. Put that thing off. Put those things off, Paul says. Don't use your, your, your body, your members, to continue to be slave to sin. 
Use your body, your members, to be slaves of righteousness. D.A. Carson says this about this passage. True freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And this is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. Isn't that helpful? We're not begrudgingly obeying the Lord. We're joyfully obeying the Lord because he's given us his righteousness and we don't have to prove anything. Instead, we get to live freely in his righteousness and do uh, his commands. Because as his word says, as John says in one of his letters, his commands are not burdensome. People who continue in Christ's word will know the truth and the truth will set them free. And as those who are free to do what they ought because it pleases them, True disciples of Jesus will carry out their heavenly Father's desires. Look at verse 38. I speak what I've seen in the presence of the Father, and so then you do what you have heard from your Father. This is Jesus talking. Our Father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did, but now you're trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Like father, like son, right? If anything has been made abundantly clear in John's gospel by now, it's this. Jesus unabashedly claims that God is his father who sent him from heaven to earth to speak the father's words and carry out the father's will. Nobody can read John's gospel honestly and argue that Jesus has not made this claim over and over and over. Last week in verse 29, Jesus said that the father's always with him and he always does what pleases the father. He always carries out his father's desires. Here we see that Jesus spoke what he had seen in the presence of the Father, and he told them the truth that he had heard from God. Jesus was once again claiming God as his Father, exposing his identity to these Jews, and he was accusing the Jews of having a different father. Again, they got defensive. They reiterated that Abraham was their father, and they called, but Jesus called them out on their claim because they were focused on physical lineage, and Jesus was focused on spiritual lineage. He told them, if Abraham really was your father, then you would do what Abraham did. Instead, you're doing what he would never do. What did Abraham do? Remember when we went through Genesis? Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God's word had a place among Abraham but not among these Jews because they didn't believe the Lord who was standing right there in front of them. Instead, they were trying to kill the one who was speaking the truth, something Abraham would never do, would never do. In verse 41, Jesus was alluding to the reality that they had a different father besides Abraham and that offended the Jews. And so they responded with this backhanded statement aimed directly at Jesus. We weren't born of sexual immorality, 
they were most likely aware that Jesus was conceived out of wedlock, but they were clearly unaware that his virgin mother's pregnancy was the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. They're judging by outward appearance, not according to righteous judgment. Remember when he told them that? Stop judging according to outward appearance. They thought Jesus was born in sin, but they failed to understand that he was the sinless one born to redeem those who were born in sin and enslaved to it all of their lives. That's you and me. Jews were trying to claim the moral high ground here, saying, we have one father, God. Like, all right, I'll see your Abraham and I'll raise you one. We have one father, God. In Exodus 4.22, God called Israel his firstborn son. And in Jeremiah 31.9, he said, I am Israel's father. This is the language that God uses to refer to the people of Israel. These Jews were claiming God as their father because of their lineage as Israelites. But Jesus again called them out on their claim. He said, if, you're, if God were your father, then you would love me because I came from God and I'm here right now. Chapter 7, Jesus said that the world hates him because he testifies that its works are evil. Earlier in chapter 8, he told the Jews that, if, if they, that they were of the world, and now we see why. Because they do not love him. They don't love Jesus. They hated him, and they wanted to kill him because he was telling them that their deeds were evil. He had an answer for everything that they had. Every excuse that they gave, he shot it down. If you have no love for Jesus, then you have no love for God. This is the truth that he's proclaiming. In one of his New Testament letters, John writes in 1 John 2.23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You know what that means? It means that you can't confess God as your Father if you don't confess the Son as your Savior. These Jews were claiming God as their father while denying and hating God the Son. And throughout this conversation, Jesus was alluding to the reality that they had a different God than a, or a different father than God or Abraham. And in these next verses, Jesus finally told them who their father really was. Brace yourselves. Look at verse 43. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He, when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. It's a serious thing to be told that your father is the devil. It's one thing to be told that from someone else in this room. It's another thing entirely to be told that from Jesus himself. That's no small accusation. But remember, Jesus is never wrong in his assessment of the human heart. He's never wrong in anything. He doesn't lie. He's God. Like father, like son, right? 
The devil was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. When he first came on scene in the Garden of Eden, it was clear that he wanted death for Adam and Eve and for all humanity. And what did he do? He lied in order to tempt them to sin and rebel against God and sentence themselves to death. Like their father, the devil, these Jews had murderous intent, and they would soon lie in order to tempt the Roman officials to convict Jesus of rebellion and sentence him to death. The devil doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. These, were, these Jews claimed to stand in the truth, in the law, but they rejected it in practice because the truth was not in them. My word has no place among you, Jesus said. Back in chapter 3, Jesus said, anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. But these Jews refused to come to the light of the world, right? This is what he called himself last week in, uh, earlier in chapter 8. They refused to come to the light of the world because they rejected the truth in their unbelief. No one can convict Jesus of sin because there is only truth in him and no unrighteousness in him. The devil has no truth in him, and he only ever sins. He always hates God and rejects the truth. These Jews were doing the same thing. Jesus told them, you don't understand what I say, and you cannot understand what I say. You cannot listen to my word. You're unable to, and you cannot listen to my word. Why? Because you have the wrong father. You have the wrong father. You're not from God. You're from the devil. And you want to carry out your lying father's murderous desires. That's hard. Do you remember God's gospel promise after Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned in the, against him in the garden? He made this promise as he placed the curse on that serpent, the devil, he told the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. First, first proclamation of the gospel in, in the Bible. In this hostile exchange between Jesus and the Jews, the promised offspring of the woman was telling those who claimed God as their father that they were in fact the offspring of the serpent. These Jews were striking at Jesus' heels with their empty words, but he was graciously warning them that if they refused to believe in him, their puffed-up heads would be struck with a crushing blow of God's judgment, and they would never recover. The gracious warning of the gospel message is that we all begin this life as offspring of the serpent. Hear that. It's a gracious warning. We all begin this life as offspring of the serpent. We all start out with the devil as our father because we were all born with a sin nature. We're born with sinful desires that we carry out. It filters into our lives and out, outward. The apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the devil, the serpent, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We, too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. 
The devil is our father. And we're children under the wrath of the true father, the, the, the heavenly father, the one who is God. The gracious warning of the gospel is that we are all children of the devil who are enslaved by sin and carry out the desires of our serpent father because they're our own desires too. This would be a terrible reality. It is a terrible reality if that was where it stopped. Yeah, it's a terrible reality, but that's the gracious warning. What about the gracious promise? We all need a new father and new desires, so what did God do? This is where the gracious promise of the gospel comes in. If the son sets you free, then what? You really are free. As the son of God and the promised offspring of the woman, Jesus came to die for sinners. His heel was struck by the offspring of the serpent when they carried out their father's desires and they crucified Christ. But when Christ rose from the dead on the third day, he delivered a sin-crushing and death-crushing blow to the serpent's head and brought true life-giving freedom and forgiveness to everybody who puts their trust in him. Praise God. And as those who put our trust in him, we've been given God's Holy Spirit to live in us in order to assure us that we have a new father and new desires. In Romans 8, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption that testifies with our spirit that we are, in fact, God's children. How great is that? Paul says all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. It's God's Holy Spirit that works in us to give us the desire and the ability to do what pleases him. In John 16, Jesus says that the Spirit guides us into all truth. That means that the Spirit will give us the desire and the ability to continue in Christ's word, proving that we are, in fact, real disciples of Jesus. People who continue in Christ's word have God as their father, and they will carry out their heavenly father's desires. And these true disciples of Jesus will also glorify the son. Look at verse 48. The Jews responded to him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly, I tell you, there's another one. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and so did the prophets. You say if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who are you? Who do you claim to be? You feel the tension building? This conversation is just escalating more and more and more. And the Jews were extremely offended and irritated by what Jesus was saying about them. So, so they just, they let loose. They started hurling insults as Jesus as an act of self-defense. You're a Samaritan. You have a demon. You don't wash your hands. They say that in a different gospel. You're a Samaritan. You're, you're an illegitimate half-breed. You're not son of the kingdom like we are. God's not your father. You have a demon. Your father is the devil. 
about that? But again, Jesus spoke truth to them. I don't have a demon. God is my father, and he seeks to glorify me. And I seek to honor him. But you, what do you do? You dishonor me. And when you dishonor me, you dishonor him. And then he laid another truly I tell you statement on them. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. True disciples of Jesus never see death because they keep his word. And to keep his word is to believe it, to love it, to obey it, to continue in it. These Jews did not keep his word. And that's why he told them earlier in chapter 8 that they would die in their sin. You will taste death. This is the message that he has for them. Unless you repent, turn back, believe in me. They were shocked. They were appalled at his statement here in verse 51. They thought it was so absurd that they, they were convinced that he had to be demon-possessed. This is the only way they could explain it. How could he say that anyone who keeps his word will never see death, never taste death, when Abraham and the prophets heard and obeyed God's word and they still died? They're heated here, right? Verse 53, you got a lot of nerve. Do you really think that you're better than our father Abraham and the prophets who came after him? Who do you claim to be? They were accusing Jesus of glorifying himself. Look at verse 54. If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You don't know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Have you ever blown up a balloon, and you just keep putting air into it, and you get it to the point to where it's, it's stretched so tight that if you give it one more puff of air, it's going to explode? That's the tension that we ought to feel here as we read this. Jesus was stretching these Jews to the breaking point with what he was saying, and he was about to burst their balloon. The gloves are off here. Jesus is sparing no punches. In John's gospel, true knowledge of God is always evidenced by obedience to God. It works itself in and through their lives and goes outward. Jesus told the Jews that, if, that, that they didn't know God because God's desire was to glorify the Son, and their desire was to kill him. They claimed that God was their father, but they were not carrying out his desires. They claimed to know God, but they really didn't know him. That's the reality that Jesus just exposed. But Jesus knows the father because he keeps the father's word. He was speaking the truth, and he was calling them what they are, liars. And here we get to it, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. The Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and he went out of the temple. The balloon just popped. In the Jews' minds, Jesus just went too far and they had enough. Abraham believed God's promises and trusted God to fulfill them, including and especially God's promise to bless all the nations one day through Abraham's offspring, 
The people of Israel associated that promise with the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus, in the Jews' minds, just had the audacity here to refer to the fulfillment of that promise as my day. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. In the same way he told the Jews that Moses wrote about him, he told them that Abraham was excited about him. And in response to Jesus' audacious claim, the Jews retorted, Abraham has been dead for 2,000 years. What are you talking about? You're not even 50, and you say you've seen it? That is ridiculous. And then Jesus gave them the most jaw-dropping, truly I tell you statement in this whole exchange. Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. He could have just as easily said before Abraham was, I was. And that would have been totally true. But he was deliberately and specifically pointing to his identity as God himself. So he used God's name, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. If Jesus was lying, then what he just said in verse 58 would would amount to blasphemy, and he would have been deserving of death. But all throughout chapter 8, John has taken great pains to show us that Jesus not only always speaks the truth, but that Jesus is the truth. The Jews were furious. They picked up stones to throw at Jesus. They didn't care about conducting an orderly trial at first. All that formality went out the window. They wanted to kill him right there on the spot. Why? Because they were murderous in their intent. They were carrying out their father's desires. But as proof that the father, the heavenly father, is the one who glorifies the son, and that the son had come to carry out the desires of his heavenly father, nobody was able to throw a single stone at Jesus. Not one, because he was hidden from them and he left the temple. His hour had not yet come, but his hour would come. And the son would carry out the father's desire by willingly laying down his life as a ransom to free enslaved sinners. And the father would glorify the son by raising him from the dead, giving approval to the son's sacrificial payment. This is enough. That's what God the father said. That's what he's implying by raising his son from the grave. His sacrifice is sufficient And then he seated his son at the heavenly throne at his right hand, restoring the glory that he once had with the Father. As it turns out, the Jews who had believed in Jesus, verse 30, didn't really believe in Jesus. Their faith was superficial. Jesus said that they were slaves to sin, that his word had no place among them, that the devil was their father and they carried out their father's desires, and Jesus said that they were liars like their father. And they proved Jesus right by their own murderous actions when they picked up stones to throw at the one that they originally claimed to believe. They didn't seek to glorify him when he claimed to be God. They sought to kill him. So what do you do with this claim? If he was lying, then he's not really God, and we have no business being here. He should be dismissed as a blaspheming lunatic. But if he is telling the truth, and he is, 
because he is the truth, then everything else, if he says, I am God, and that's true, then everything else that he says is true, including all of the things that he said in this conversation with these Jews. Will you glorify yourself by rejecting him as the Jews did, or will you glorify him by being honest about your need for him and truly believing in him? True disciples of Jesus glorify him as their Savior and their Lord. We rejoice and we proclaim in his saving, we proclaim his saving work, and we keep his word by believing it and loving it and obeying it. We joyfully and humbly and eagerly submit ourselves to his word because we believe that it reads our hearts with perfect accuracy and cultivates deep and genuine faith in us. We don't live for our own glory. We seek to glorify the Son and honor him as God. And in doing so, we honor the Father who sent him. If you continue in my word, then you really are my disciples. This is how Jesus, is, Jesus distinguishes between real faith and fake faith, real belief and fake belief. Those who continue in Christ's word will know the truth, and it'll set them free. They'll carry out the desires of their heavenly father because they've been adopted by him through his son. And they'll glorify the son who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The testing of our faith is often painful, right? Why? Because it costs us everything to follow Jesus. Everything. But our faith must be tested. Why? Because it must be genuine. It must be genuine. True disciples welcome that test. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. But we welcome that test because we know that the Son has set us free already from slavery to sin. And he secured our adoption into the family of God. And the testing of our faith will only lead us to greater confidence in Jesus and greater dependence upon him. Because he died in our place, we will never see spiritual death, even if we die physically. We will know the truth, we, we do know the truth experientially, and the truth has indeed set us free. And the one who is truth, the Son, the I Am, he has given us all the grace that we need to continue in his word to the very end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us all that we need in Jesus Christ. By your word, your spirit, your son, in your church. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to welcome the test. Confident not in ourselves, but free to let ourselves be known. Knowing that you already know us. And, and willing to let others know us so that they can see that the work that has been done in us is of God and not ourselves. May Christ get all the glory and would you give us the grace that we need to endure, to continue with joy in his word until we see you face to face. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.